Mark Lynch, director of POMEPS. Welcome to the Middle East Political Science Podcast. On this week's episode, we begin by talking to Tomas Serres uh, about his new Columbia University Press book, The Suspended Disaster, Governing by Crisis in Bouteflika's Algeria. After that, we have a conversation with Liesl Hintz about the Zoom writing group that she formed for Syrian and Turkish academics affected by the earthquake and her own research on Turkish pop culture and how you can learn about politics by studying uh, the media. Uh, Thanks for listening to our podcast. And now let's get to the program. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's book segment, we're joined by Thomas Serres at the University of California at Santa Cruz and the author of the brand new book, The Suspended Disaster, Governing by Crisis in Bouteflika's Algeria, which was just published actually in my series in uh, Columbia University Press. Uh, Thomas, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for having me. So tell us about this book and kind of where it came from and, uh, you know, kind of what you were trying to achieve uh, with with this book. Well, um, I think that this is a book that originates from um, my my um, inability to understand what was happening when I first visited Algeria, Algeria in 2006. And uh, I was there with a friend and his family was talking about politics quite a lot. And and what this described was this kind of mysterious, uh, omnipotent uh, uh, regime uh, uh, as it was like a, a scientific proven fact. And, and they described also a situation of like constant danger for the entire polity and for the nation and for, for the citizenry. And and it felt like something that was very difficult to, to actually piece together and understand the, the, the actual political dynamics. So the book really originates from this, this kind of puzzle that was presented to me in 2006. And then mm-hmm. I, I spent 10 years uh, uh, following that, uh, studying Algeria and, and learning a lot from Algeria. Now, parts of the book are clearly inspired by the classic questions of political science, regime stability and the exercise of power. But you come at it from a quite um, from a quite different theoretical perspective. Tell us a little bit about how you tried to understand this system that uh, you were confronted with. Well, I mean, you, you, uh, you're absolutely right to say that I'm kind of bringing uh, trying to bring together two two. Uh, traditions of uh, social science and and uh, humanities uh, that are not necessarily uh, always uh, uh, working together. That is to say, uh, critical theory and political sociology. Uh, and so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to both understand a system of power uh, by uh, drawing on, on the, the, the kind of Bourdieuian political sociology that is dominant in France, and at the very same time, given uh, the fact that we're looking at a post-colony, uh, that I'm also trying to, to think about the government of the disaster or the crisis, there is a need to uh, rely on, on critical theory, uh, 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 post-colonial theory. And, and so I'm trying to bring these two, these two uh, approaches together, which means that there is a lot of uh, fieldwork, uh, uh, interviews, in-situ observations, uh, and that obviously this kind of like uh, 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 materials that have been uh, observed, gathered first hand is essential to uh, uh, actually understanding what is happening on the ground. And at the very same time, there is, I, I try to at least uh, 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 think at this kind of like more abstract level about mm-hmm. what it means in terms of uh, lived experience, in terms of uh, um uh, understanding the, the 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 various forms of um, sovereignty or biopower uh, that are uh, 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 um, that can be observed in the context of Bouteflika's area uh, that could be observed. The, the the core empirical focus of the book is on the twenty years following uh, Bouteflika's taking power in Algeria in nineteen ninety nine, and so give us a little bit of context here in terms of. What makes this period worth studying in 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 the terms you're thinking of? Uh, why did you select this era, and how does it relate to Algerian history more broadly? Well, I, I think that 
20 years of Tefika's rule were particularly interesting because at least from uh, from uh, um, this kind of like external perspective from the outside, Algeria was kind of uh, barely noticeable. Nothing was, nothing was really, nothing much was really happening in Algeria. It was a relatively stable country. The civil war was over. So Bouteflika was elected in 1999. And uh, from uh, 1992 to 1999, Algeria experienced uh, a, a decade or seven years, but continued until the early 2000s, a decade of uh, extreme violence, uh, which uh, can be described as a civil war, even though the Algerian state and political scientists, notably in the US, refuse to use the, the, the notion of civil war because they consider that uh, Islamic violence uh, is not political. Uh, nonetheless, I use the notion of civil war. And um, so Bouteflika arrived in 1999 with a platform which was basically pacifying uh, Algerian politics, returning to some kind of uh, business as usual of uh, development in the post-colony. So it's really a, a, a platform that is based on uh, reconnecting with a specific understanding of what the country's historical trajectory should have been. And that's Bouteflika in a nutshell. What he was proposing was a normalization. And the normalization implied uh, that first, the decade of civil war was going to be uh, obfuscated uh, uh, um, through a set of, of uh, uh, popular consultations, uh, referenda. And um, then a, a set of reforms, notably uh, the use of non-lethal policing rather than military violence, economic reforms, um, the, 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 the organization of elections. So Bouteflika was really the guy who uh, has his main contribution to uh, the history of the political history of Algeria was uh, uh, offering normalization. And at the very same time, while uh, researching Algerian politics, while being in Algeria uh, between 2000 and... So I started doing fieldwork in Algeria in 2008, up to 2014, uh, during all of these years, what I heard was a profound sense of anomia, as if the polity was kind of a psychology, psychologically unbalanced. And so the, this kind of narrative of normalization at the level of the state and the kind of experience of the, of the, of the people around me were completely at odds. And this is something that was, in my opinion, worth investigating. And, and so I guess that Bouteflika is really, in my opinion, uh, uh, kind of uh, these 20 years of Bouteflika's uh, uh, government are captured by this tension between an effort to bring the country back on track and a sense that this kind of uh, um, equilibrium of instability, to, to, to use uh, a phrase that is uh, actually I'm borrowing from uh, colleague, Isabel Verenfels, this equilibrium of, of instability was very unstable and the people knew it. Mm -hmm. But one of the things which um, which you really emphasize in the book, and it's, it's very interesting, is this, this idea of governing by crisis, or you use the concept mm -hmm. of uh, governing by catastrophization. Um, but, the, but the basic idea here is that he might be going for normalization, but at the same time, maintaining this constant possibility of a return to violence and war. And that tension, is, it seems quite profound throughout the entire book. It reminds me quite a lot of uh, Sami Hermes's uh, brilliant book about Lebanon um, after the civil war, that continuing sense of crisis affecting everything. Absolutely, and, and the background is very similar. Uh, and, and that's exactly, uh, uh, if you want, the, the kind of uh, theoretical uh, answer I came up with, like facing this kind of effort by the government to normalize and the sense of anomia that was still widespread among the population, but also at, at, the, at the, the various levels within the, the, the power structure, I think that the, 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 the kind of system of government that characterized Boutifica's Algeria uh, was um, exactly this, this attempt to turn a crisis into a resource, 
something that shapes the system of governance, something, something that inspires all, or at least the vast majority of the policies implemented by the state, something that is a way to maintain the country, the population, on this kind of like narrow path of progress and development. Mm -hmm. and, and what happens eventually is that governance by catastrophization is this kind of biopolitical uh, effort to transform uh, a polity that is because of various dynamics, political, cultural, economic, in a situation where change is needed mm -hmm. uh, imminently into something that is just constantly on the verge of collapsing. But then the, the key question is, what is collapse in the case of Algeria? Obviously, in the context of Algeria under Bouteflika, governance by catastrophization meant, at least from the perspective of the ruling elites, it meant we might go back to the, the, the dark decade, to uh, the civil war, to the violence of the 1990s. But from the perspective of the population, the catastrophe, the disaster, and that's I want I, the really the key the key tension in the book. There is there is there is this tension between the way in which the catastrophe is understood by the government as something that is happening in the future and that needs to be prevented, and the catastrophe as it is experienced by the masses as a daily, constant, lived experience. Something that is shaping their 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 their, their studies, their uh, uh, um, uh, efforts on the job market, uh, their relationship to politics, and so here I guess that we have uh, uh, the, the the contradiction inherent to the system of governance by catas catastrophization. That is to say that governance by catas catastrophization aims to uh, create the conditions for stability and the daily management of the population. And at the very same time, it is unbearable for the population. Now, one and of the things- to, to, to Yeah, yeah. Of, 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 and, and that's an important thing that, that you do throughout the book is connecting that lived experience with the uh, these, these higher, more abstract concepts. And come back to that in a minute. But one of the other themes in the book, which I think is really important is the kind of the sheer lack of legibility uh, of this system of power and the way that Algerians experience it. And in the book, you go, you go into quite a bit of detail about the tensions between the presidency and the military and then these clientelist networks which connect all the different parts of society. Walk us through this a little bit in terms of how you understand the governance of Algeria and uh, you know what, what do people get wrong about uh, about this? Well, I don't know if people get anything wrong. I think that there is a lot of like vernacular knowledge that is produced yeah. about Algeria and a lot of academic knowledge that is produced about Algeria. And all of this is uh, absolutely valuable. And this is what allowed me to kind of organize my own vision of what is happening. I think that the, 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 the key, uh, uh, the starting point rather, is that I was not um, happy with the the... the the, the monikers, the the, the the words, names, uh, the concepts used to describe um, the Algerian ruling coalition. Some use power, pouvoir, system, nizam, uh, or regime, as we do in political science. Uh, but but I felt that there was a need for something that was a bit more uh, focused on the dynamics within the ruling coalition. So I used the word cartel, the cartel. In the economic sense, not in the in the in the criminal organization sense. And if I use the word cattle, it's because I come from a, this kind of like political sociology, Bourdieuian tradition, where we look at the state as a social field, a social field uh, that is inhabited by different groups uh, uh, that might share some uh, some uh, habitus, some uh, some uh, understandings of what the state does, what the society needs from the state, but also a social field with a specific capital, a specific resource. And so I'm using the notion of cartel to understand the way in which different social groups in Algeria come together within this ruling coalition 
to appropriate state power, this resource, uh, this specific capital, to use, to use Bourdieu's uh, notion. And at the very same time, the notion of cartel allows uh, me to say that, or to explain that, first, there is a competition among these groups, but at the same time, the, the purpose of their gathering within the cartel is to limit competition from the outside and to guarantee their uh, monopoly, their collective monopoly over what is in the state. So it is about limiting the risks resulting from competition for state power. It doesn't mean that these social groups have necessarily the same objectives or the same way to understand what is good for the country, which means that, and this is where we go back to catastrophization, mm -hmm. which means that within the cartel, within the ruling coalition in Algeria, you have different groups competing with each other, notably the presidency, notably uh, uh, the army, notably the intelligence services, and notably uh, uh, the upper level of uh, uh, the state bureaucracy. And these uh, groups, because they compete with each other, create a form of instability within the state. And, and what is fascinating when you uh, uh, talk you talk with uh, uh, Algerians, whether they are politicians or like regular citizens, is that they know they know very well that within the state people are fighting constantly, and so it creates a, a situation where the ruling coalition aims to create stability, aims to maintain its uh, benefits, but at the very same time creates a, a sense of of uh, social anxiety because people are constantly expecting some kind of major, major drama at the level of the state. So you have a state that is preventing the disaster, allegedly securitizing, securitizing, but at the very same time, because of the way in which the ruling coalition operates, producing the disaster, producing the conditions for uh, a rise in violence, producing the conditions for the fall of the president, for the disgrace of major uh, military figures. And so at the very same time, this ruling coalition is trying to maintain the country you know, on the path of, of um, development, but creating the conditions for an explosion. And, so, and again, what is essential that the people know it. Yeah, but what's so interesting about this, you point out, is the high level of visibility of these, of these internal differences that, you know, there's we have this idea of this like deep state where the real stuff happens behind the curtain. But at the same time, you have the people openly arguing and openly fighting with each other, um, creating a very, I think, a quite unusual uh, kind of politics that then surrounds that as you attempt to decode what's really going on. Absolutely. And and this is why, in a way, uh, it is it is important to uh, even though one can be critical of um, liberalization or democrati democratization and all of these processes that have been implemented in the global south uh, and in Eastern Europe since the 1970s, 80s, uh, uh, 2000s. Uh, at the very same time, it's essential to keep in mind that these processes, these like re reforms, these like transformative uh, 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 processes have concrete Consequences and one of the one of the key consequences is typically that what is happening within the state is expressed, like in the public space, in the uh, public sphere, all the time. In Algeria under Bouteflika, even if the, the the possibility to for, for political opponents to seize power and become president was inexistent, it was very easy for opponents, but also people within the ruling coalition to go out in the open, in a newspaper or on TV and say, well, I disagree with this or that. And I think that this person is trying to destroy the state. And it became some kind of a routine. Every six months, you would have the member of a union associated with the president or a political party associated with the military or this or that, who openly said, well, this person who is part of the same ruling alliance is working for the French state, and its goal is its goal is to decapitate the army and to destroy the Algerian nation. And so, 
you end up with like a performance, a performance that is again accessible to the the, the population that is visible but not legible. And this is the key tension here. You, you constantly, uh, um, um, as a political scientist, as a regular citizen, or as a politician, you are receiving all of this information, but you don't know what to do with it. So there is this kind of like you're overwhelmed with information, with contradictory uh, uh, discourses, and, and what you have is a very postmodern uh, 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 polity. And and what is what is what makes it even more difficult in the Asian case is that the political culture was shaped by decolonization by 1962 by the war against the French and so the political culture is very modern. It it relies on some kind of modern facts such as we need a state we need development we need like equality, and at the very same time the the, the polity under Bouteflika was this kind of like postmodern nonsense, where people struggle to make sense of what was happening around them and understand some very simple political trajectories. And it created like this kind of like mental space that is characteristic, I would say, of governance by catas catastrophization. Now, the book is full of, um, of detail and, uh, you know, it's very rich in terms of the, the, the history that gets covered. But maybe we could talk about just one episode because it seems to be uh, a really, to be a, a fascinating one, which gets at a lot of the themes of your book. And that's after uh, Bouteflika has his stroke and is then renominated for the presidency and wins. Um, and walk us through that a little bit and what that that episode tells us about the nature of this cartel and then, or what, you know, the nature of the, of the, of the operation of power in Algeria. Mm -hmm. Um, absolutely. So I, I think that uh, to, to situate what happened, uh, at the end of uh, 2012, there was a sense that Bouteflika had kind of won. There was a, like, Ajaya was, he, he had been re-elected for a third term. Um, the ruling coalition was kind of pacified around him. And he had this uh, stroke in 2013, knowing that Bouteflika had never been uh, fully accepted by the military. But at least in terms of like the kind of balance that had been found, the situation was acceptable for all the, the, the stakeholders. But Bouteflika had this stroke in, 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 in uh, spring uh, 2013. And, and so based on that, he became uh, unable to uh, talk and to uh, move. Artist to walk, and 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 um, the election was scheduled for 2014. There was one year and a half to go before that. One year, and and when it could have been uh, imaginable that uh, another figure within the ruling coalition could emerge as uh, somebody who is consensual enough to win the election, because after all. Winning the election is not the most complicated part of the deal because you have a bureaucratic machine behind you. You have all of these groups working for you, different political parties, the bureaucracy, the police. Winning the election is the, actually the, 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 the easy part of the, of the job. But the difficult part is to come up with the, the support from all of these components of the cartel. And so there was nobody. And this is what, what made... Uh, the, the situation in Algeria from, from 2013 to 2019, so, so uh, uh, Kafkaian absurd. Uh, there was a man unable to talk, unable to speak, unable to walk, but the, he was the only uh, mm -hmm. because at this point he was merely a body, able to kind of like attract the support of all of these uh, groups. And so in 2014, you have an election without a candidate. The front runner is like already elected before the election uh, is like the entire campaign is, is uh, started, but he's not able to talk. So you have all of these uh, surrogates belonging to various parts of the, these kind of civilian groups who are components of the ruling coalition talking for him. And this happens in a context of tension because people are, are, are already kind of conscious that these, these elections, they do not 
bring uh, stability, uh, they do not bring uh, popular sovereignty, but more importantly, they create a form of uncertainty. What could happen during an election? What could happen? What if what if somebody in the military uh, 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 oligarchy felt that Bouteflika is now uh, disabled, unable to govern, and decided to organize a coup? So the election becomes, because Bouteflika is now unable to perform his duty as some kind of magician, uh, uh, you know, performing the, the kind of like reunion of all of these components together, the elections become this kind of highly stressful moment when the people is kind of constantly reminded that they need to vote or the country will collapse. And, and what happened in 2014 is already highly contentious. And what, what happened eventually is that they did that in 2014, and they had five years after the, 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 the re-election of Bouteflika to come up with another name. And they did not. Still couldn't. And they tried again in 2019. They, they tried again in 2019, but this time the kind of like uh, tension and, and the simple fact that elections were just perceived as an insult led to the Herak. So they turned elections into revolutionary moments. No, it's fascinating. Because of the the book, yeah, the, the book, you know, you, you end before the Hirak, um, but it really is a fascinating addendum to uh, to the discussion uh, because we see what happens after Bouteflika uh, finally is removed from the scene. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the coda is just about the Herak because the, the French version of the book was written before the Herak, so the, but the, uh, the, the English version of the book like includes a lot of uh, 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 snippets and, and elements gathered from the Herak, notably uh, with interviews that that I that I conducted after the Herak. Um, so and and so the coda, the, the conclusion is just about the Herak. Yeah. Um, I think that when I wrote this conclusion, I had uh, already understood that. The system of um, this kind of like government of the crisis or government by catas catastrophization that could have collapsed in 2019 with the Herak had actually been able to resist this uh, revolutionary situation. And, and uh, it leaves us with this kind of uh, uncomfortable question that is not a question that is uh, only uh, specific to Algeria. Can a state be defeated uh, in in twenty twenty three uh, in a in a by a peaceful movement? Um, no, it's a it's a great question. We see it all around the world. We see this being tested, and uh, it is depressing in in many ways. Um, let me ask you one final question, um, which uh, linking back to something you said uh, before, as you were introducing the book, which is you place a great deal of emphasis on this being kind of a post colonial situation. And uh, you make a real effort, and I think a very productive one, to engage with the scholarship from the Global South. Uh, you have Mbembe's uh, Necropolitics features prominently um, in the book, and there's other theorists. Tell us a little bit about how this informs your reading of, of, of Algeria and why it's so important to you. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess that, um, again, what what led me uh, to just look at Algeria as not only a case study, but um, a place from uh, from where theory uh, originates uh, in its own terms is because Algeria as a polity is very uh, self-centered. Mm -hmm. People in Algeria think in their own terms and the Algerian government, even though it is exposed to foreign influences, has its own way to understand everything in a very national uh, uh, or nationalist context. So it's important to, 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 to talk about the government of the crisis as something that is very often documented from the global north uh, with uh, the influence of various uh, colleagues, scholars who work on the, the place of neoliberalism and uh, the various crisis produced by neoliberalism very often 
with a focus on the US and what neoliberalism is in the United States, uh, or uh, uh, disaster capitalism, all of this literature is very often uh, centered on the global north. Uh, the literature on, on critical security studies too, on, on securitization also is very centered on the global north. So there is a need to decenter. And Algeria does this because it is a country that has uh, that is centered on itself, that is not necessarily exposed to these influences and that is constantly uh, um, reformulating its political discourses based on what comes from the outside. There is something very Algerian. But to go straight to the point, I think that uh, the, the 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 kind of uh, situation described by uh, Achille Mambe in West Africa uh, is very interesting, but doesn't apply to Algeria because Mambe speaks about a mutual zombification, about uh, the fetish of commandment, uh, as it is as if as if it was something that that works in the post colony, and my experience is that in Algeria it doesn't work. There is no fascination by commandment. There is no uh, uh, interest in the grotesque. There is no uh, uh, mutual zombification. So what we have is a post-colony where the kind of, of, of uh, symbolic order studied by Achille Mambe doesn't work, doesn't operate. Yeah. And what is interesting is that the, the post-colony, uh, Algeria as a post-colony, but also as, as a polity uh, in its own rights, uh, uh, has tried various actors in Algeria since independence have tried to think about the past crisis or the crisis that they are they were experiencing and ways in which they could overcome this crisis. The crisis of development, the crisis of colonization, the crisis of, of, of politics, and then often in the Asian context, but I would say in the global south, in the post-colonial context, uh, uh, even if the post-colonial context is not limited to the global south, one element of the discussion is culture, authenticity. What does it mean concretely? What does what does what does this crisis do to to our uh, uh, culture, to our self as as a community? And so, what happened in Algeria? Uh, since 1962, but especially in the last years of Africa, and this is where I, I studied it, there was this effort to think about the culture of the nation, the culture of the people. And it could go in very different directions. In some cases, people will say, the people are backward, uh, we have failed to become modern, and then the response to the crisis is education. It's discipline. It's Historically, the response of the colonizer, the response of the post-colonial state, and the response of the Islamist. We have failed to become modern. We have failed right. to, to, to emerge uh, uh, as a people, and therefore we need to be reformed, uh, disciplined. But there is also another discourse in Algeria, another way to think about the people's culture, which is very, uh, that was shaped by the war of independence that is all about the revolution, the revolutionary culture of the masses, the egalitarian culture of the masses. And what I try to understand in, the, in toward the end of the book is precisely this kind of battle, this symbolic battle engaged in the post-colony between, on the one hand, the disciplinary reformist narrative characteristic of this kind of developmentalist mm -hmm state that can be reformulated from colonialism to Islamism, and a more epic or heroic understanding of what the culture of the masses here is, that is directly uh, 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 linked to, typically, the work of somebody like Franz Fanon, and that has a more contentious dimension. And in that case, the, 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 the outcome is not reform, but revolution direct contention. And so the Herak is really the, the, the triumph, momentary, but nonetheless, the triumph of this kind of heroic understanding of the culture of the masses over the kind of disciplinary reformist understanding of the culture of the masses. No, that's fascinating. And uh, and there's so much more we could talk about, but uh, but there's but uh, 
We've been speaking with uh, Thomas Harris about his new book, The Suspended Disaster, Governing by Crisis in Bouteflika's Algeria. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. And now we're going to talk with uh, Liesl Hintz at Johns Hopkins SICE about some of the really interesting things that she's been working on lately. Liesl, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Thanks so much for having me, Mark. Always good to be here. Yeah. So you told me the other day about this really interesting project that you've developed over the last year or so, this uh, this Zoom reading or the Zoom writing workshop that you put together for Turkish and Syrian academics. Tell us about the origins of that and uh, and how it's going. Thanks very much for giving me the space to talk about that. Um, I have been a scholar of Turkey for, I guess, almost 15 years at this point. And so my intellectual and, and academic and professional and, and friend, and at this point, you know, quasi familial circles are sort of all centered in Turkey. And so on February 6th, in the wake of the earthquakes, what would end up being the multiple earthquakes and aftershocks that affected Turkey and Syria, killing over 50,000 people. You know, I was seeing um, on social media in kind of the weeks that followed a lot of people expressing um, difficulties in getting back to work. Obviously, there's the immediate, you know, following the search and rescue efforts, the humanitarian response, all of that. But after a few weeks, I saw a lot of scholars from Turkey, some from Syria as well, but again, my networks tend to be a little bit more Turkey concentrated, kind of lamenting their, their frustration, their grief, their sense of isolation. They didn't know how to get back to work. They knew that they needed to. They had deadlines to meet. The world was moving on. People around them, especially if they were in the diaspora, say, you know, a Turkey scholar based in North America or outside of Turkey and Europe, didn't seem to grasp the gravity of what had happened and, and how this was traumatic in lots of ways. And so one of the things that I was seeing is that there is a lot of indirect, uh, a lot of um, sort of indirect trauma that can happen, mm -hmm. especially for someone who has grown up in Turkey or has origins in Turkey that has experienced multiple catastrophic earthquakes. And that was compounded by the frustration with the political system that kind of, you know, not only was inadequate in terms of the response of search and rescue and humanitarian aid provision and so forth, but also had engaged in all this crony capitalism that meant that a lot of those buildings shouldn't have collapsed in the first place. Mm -hmm. So all of that is to say there was this immediate grief and anger and sadness, but then there was this lingering sense of isolation and, and frustration. And so I was trying to think of what I could do to support uh, scholars from Turkey and Syria. And one of the things that I thought of that I thought could kind of provide a sense of community and solidarity as well as or a structure to the writing process, which any academic knows that writing is a solitary process. It can be difficult, right. especially if working from home, to set your own schedule, to meet you know deadlines, set up accountability, all that kind of stuff. So I knew that you know, friend groups had been working in kind of informal ad hoc Zoom groups. I'd been working with Sibel Oktay and Barış Keskin, two other uh, scholars from Turkey in our own little circle. And so one Friday night, I thought, well, why don't I, you know, send out on social media, hey, if anyone would be interested in kind of, you know, joining a support group in a sense to help mm -hmm. provide a sense of community and, and writing structure, let me know. And I got. Uh, you I thought, thought you'd get like three or four friends, right? I thought I was, you know, waking up Saturday. I was like, okay, maybe one or two people. And in a couple of days, I had over 200 responses. Um, and, you know, these were from Amazing. some people that I knew um, in my social circles, but because of, of course, the algorithms of, you know, what used to be Twitter and, and some of the other social media platforms that we use, it was really widely shared. And so, I ended up with a lot of direct messages from people who were interested. And so I started figuring out how to manage all of this. And I started an Excel spreadsheet. And then I thought, okay, I'll, I'll create a weekly schedule. So this kind of developed organically. I hadn't run one of these groups before, but it just came out of this desire to kind of, and I, I really want to be hesitant because I don't want to center myself in this at all, but it's it, it just came from a desire to try to provide some kind of support system for those who were struggling and to kind of give back to right. the communities that had given me so much in terms of my own research. But so it's not just like a social happy hour, right? What are you actually doing? 
Yeah. So it's, it's a bit like a social happy hour for me, <laughs> the, the community building was really important. Um, one of the things that I think people who aren't familiar with zoom writing groups, uh, might not know is that this isn't really like a, a research workshop. This isn't, uh, you know, present your, you know, most current right. paper and people will provide feedback. I ended up with, um, you know, over a hundred people who participated at least once, but they came from a variety of academic backgrounds. So it doesn't really make sense. You know, maybe you could have a publishing workshop and I've actually hosted Simon Maybun twice, oh, yeah. um, who's done some great, great from CPAD, um, yep. who's done some professional development um, workshops. But this is more, you know, you welcome everyone into the, the space. You set a two hour time frame. People can join late, they can leave early, um, but you just sort of, want to provide this accountability and you actually it looks really odd the first time you do it but you leave your camera on and you're sort of working in a virtual library as one of the survey respondents put it I ended up doing a survey and writing um, an mm -hmm. academic article experience um, and every time that you know you're an hour in and you're sort of tempted to check social media you look up and you see this community of scholars <laughs> who's working at the same time as you are and you're motivated to keep going for that time period and what I found in the survey is that, especially for the early career researchers, we have everything from MA students to full professors, uh, again, in a variety of disciplines, that especially for the early career researchers, it was helpful in kind of imposter syndrome reduction because they saw they're not the only ones mm -hmm. that are sort of struggling to get writing done, create accountability and so forth. And I have to say, you know, the these people who are joining these are bringing energy and motivation to others. They're bringing energy and motivation to me. And so, you know, to have them share that, because I'll have everybody kind of give an update when they first join. And then I have everyone put a sentence in the chat. So we know mm. what topics people are working on. So I've been able to connect scholars who are working on similar topics. I ended up doing a podcast with uh, Feta Sayandengiz, who's a scholar whom I hadn't met, who joined, but also works on media and gender. Um, and so, you know, people are identifying common research topics, they're creating accountability, um, and they're they're motivating each other in, in ways that I think are, are really important. And I've sort of, you know, people will DM me and say, hey, I finally, you know, submitted my dissertation. So we've had three, nice. three PhD students submit their dissertations. We've had people submit articles, R&R &R and all that. So work is getting done slowly, slowly. And, and I'm just in awe at the, the commitment and the dedication of people who have been through so much that they are there, they're showing up and they're supporting others at the same time. And so people just sit, sit there quietly. They're not like chattering to each other as they write. No. So I, we have everybody mute. So I welcome everybody. We kind of have a little, you know, rundown on if there's a development in Turkish politics, which there almost always is. Um, you know, we'll, we'll sort of uh, keep track of what everybody's working on. But I try to keep the introduction super short because I want to get people yeah. into the writing process. But then you mute your microphones, you work for the two hours. And then when it's up, I say, OK, everyone, that's the end. Thanks for joining. Here's when you can join us again. So, yeah, there's there's no chit chat um, other than sort of supportive messages in the DMs. But we kind of want to just provide this, again, sort of yeah. virtual library space. Oh, it's a great idea. And I, I wonder, I, I hope that people start picking it up and replicating it in other contexts. It's great. Um, so let's talk about you and your research. Uh, so I know that you are um, deep in uh, the process of working on on your second book. And, um, and tell us about it. Uh, you know, I've heard about it, but our audience hasn't. So tell us what you're working on. Yeah, so I'm coming uh, close to the conclusion of my second book, um, and this is uh, on the intersection of identity politics and media, and specifically popular culture. Mm -hmm. And this is a book that is sort of a, what I think of as a logical follow-on to my first book, which was looking at the foreign policy arena as this sort of alternative space for those competing over the national identity understandings that they wanted to be institutionalized and disseminated throughout the population, that they can kind of take the fight outside to the foreign policy level and use specific tools that the foreign policy arena offers in promoting those particular identities. And in doing the research for that, like how do you get 
analytical leverage on something as slippery and intangible and subjective and contested as identities, especially as a foreign researcher and particularly mm -hmm. The Turkish context as a researcher from the United States um, and conspiracy theories are rife and pretty mm -hmm. much everybody that I interviewed was was pretty certain that I was an agent of some sort. So how can you go about getting leverage on these? And I ended up using pop culture sources, um, whether those are song lyrics or they are, you know, debates in the media about a particular television show. Um, or it's an excerpt from a novel. These provide, I think, incredibly valuable empirical windows for scholars, mm -hmm. irrespective of positionality, but especially for someone coming outside the context, to see how debates over identity play out, to see what points people are making about, um, you know, Kurdish identity or public expressions of Islam or who are sort of Turkey's allies and enemies and all that kind of stuff. So. I ended up using popular culture as a data source for the first book. And now it's actually the political terrain that I'm investigating. Excellent. So I look at, yeah, it, it for me, it's, it's a logical follow on. And I look at how incredibly seriously regimes take the mm -hmm. policing and promotion of popular culture. And why do we as scholars not, right? We look at in political science, and I should say as political science scholars, because there are media studies and cultural right, studies right. and anthropological scholars who are doing this and have been doing this. But in political science, when we're looking at fundamentally political processes of authoritarian legitimation, of opposition suppression, of nation building, we're looking at things like legislatures and militaries and sometimes education systems and, and things like that. But the media is in political science still a relatively underexplored terrain. And so what I wanted to do is look at popular culture as political battleground and look at the ways in which these understandings of identity are contested and how those identities relate directly mm -hmm. to power dynamics in Turkey, because it's not like the AKP is promoting a particular identity solely for instrumental reasons. The ruling party, the Justice and Development Party's use of institutional tools, political economy tools, given its influence over private media, its rhetoric, mm -hmm. its uh, informal blacklisting of actors, all of these tools and kind of the immediate authoritarian toolkit are maybe partially about getting votes or oppressing the opposition, but it's also about for a, a lot of the kind of core of this party, what they genuinely believe should be on television. So there's a very mm -hmm. normative constitutive component of who is the in-group? Who are the us? What do they look like? How do they behave? And so the book project looks at this kind of contestation over identity and power struggles in the pop culture sphere at three levels of analysis. The regime, nation building, authoritarian legitimation level of analysis, the foreign policy level of analysis, which is really interesting because- mm -hmm. That's the connection back to your, your first book. Exactly, but but from a totally different angle. And, and I think building on what often in IR is examinations of soft power, but the the conflict over over media content mm -hmm. is huge. If you so the that chapter looks at the GCC crisis through the lens of television and how when Turkey was supporting Qatar and Hamas and had the feud over a uh, feud with Saudi and UAE and, and Egypt, the television content was at the center of this, okay. whether you're drawing it as a boycott, whether you are uh, condemning it using a fatwa, whether you are promoting a new uh, Mamluk-centered version of uh, like Ottoman era history in order to condemn Ottoman tyranny mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. show how like valid and, and valuable the Mamluks were. So again, kind of taking these forms of pop culture super seriously. So that's the second level of analysis. And then the third is the opposition level and how opposition actors can even in highly repressive authoritarian regimes, use popular culture content as a way of contesting the repression that they face. So anyone who uh, follows you on Twitter knows that uh, one of the things you do is you watch a lot of uh, of cooking shows. 
And uh, as someone who personally uh, binges Beat Bobby Flay and Cutthroat Kitchen, um, I think that sounds like a wonderful way to spend my research time. But um, but you seem to find a lot of really interesting things going on there. Um, I don't want to spoil any articles or, or the book you're working on, but tell us a little bit about that if you can. Absolutely. So this was a project that, again, came out of my language learning, like watching Turkish mm-hmm. cooking shows, way of, of learning Turkish way back when, and I won't give it a year, when I started my doctoral research. And part of that is that I was trained as a pastry chef. After college, I went to cooking school. I worked in restaurants. I, I just it really I, made you I, an I, ideal graduate student, I must say. <laughs> I was always popular at the, the department meetings when I would bring a baked treat. It's true. It's my party trick. Um, but, you know, especially for language learning, it's it's about giving instructions and it's using mm-hmm. repetitive language and it's using familiar, uh, familiar topics. So it's a great language learning tool. But then I realized I was watching hundreds of hours of cooking shows way back when. And then I came to Turkey in the past couple of years and the content had changed so much. Although they're still talking about food, the numbers of references to Alhamdulillah, Mashallah, Hamdulsan, right? All of these kinds of Arabic, you know, Arabic derived religious references that would signal whether uh, genuinely or instrumentally or performatively a pious Muslim identity. Mm-hmm. We're showing this, you know, ostensible space for learning how to cook a, you know, a Ramadan there, right? And that in itself is also political because it's targeting a particular uh, religiously affiliated section of the Turkish audience. So I have a project on gender construction and uh, cooking shows. And given the target audience, given the ads, given the time of day, uh, given the many references to how you can make your mother-in-law happy if you use her recipes, how you can keep the children busy while you perform the, you know, while you prepare the Ramadan dinner. It's kind of this, I mean, it's, it's Gramscian in a way. There's this unconscious absorption or the hope is that mm-hmm. there's an unconscious absorption of this content because it's entertaining, but it's also educational. So it's edutainment in a sense. <laughs> and it reflects a very specific vision of the ideal woman that the AKP promotes, that they, in their you know rhetoric, are repeatedly saying women need to have at least three children. Women should you know stay in the home and, and motherhood is the primary role. Um, religion, all of these different kinds of things, but using this entertaining kind of innocuous format as a way to disseminate, articulate and disseminate that particular vision of the AKP's ideal woman. Now, how does that differ from what you saw previously? What I saw now is that you have many, many more headscarf contestants and that uh, contestants, if it is, say, a reality show, Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. you see many more headscarf women in um, some of the more like studio based shows uh, where you would have a host who's kind of giving these cute girl next door type tips that, again, are undergirding or undergirded by this vision of the AKP. Um, the language is different. The content, the the guests are often um, Islamic scholars. So the the overall focus is still food, but the uh, content is much more uh, Ottoman era focused, like Ottoman dishes. And then again, this focus on Islam. And then one last thing I'll say quickly, because I have a, a sort of separate pride, uh, separate part of the paper that talks about these competition shows in particular is that they serve as this us versus them identity uh, contestation arena. Mm-hmm. You, the great majority of the comments about these cooking shows are not about individuals' food, but rather their comportment. Like, mm-hmm. did the woman laugh out loud too much? Did she talk too much? Did she not dress appropriately? Did she not portray the ideal woman? So again, while it's about the food, it's not really about the food. So I think a really attractive vessel for regimes to use in trying to supplement their other identity construction efforts outside of TV. I want to come back to uh, the foreign policy uh, questions, because, you know, as you uh, as you mentioned a few minutes ago, you know, there, have been, there have been some pretty big changes. You had the uh, the blockade of Qatar. And then over the last couple of years, you've seen the reconciliation between Turkey and the UAE and Saudi Arabia and Egypt. Just the other day, we saw uh, Sisi and Erdogan shaking hands um, unimaginable five, six years ago. 
Um, so how do you how do you see this reflected and discussed in popular culture? Has there been a 180 degree shift or is it ignored or like what kinds of things do you see that uh, that help you help us to understand what's happening here? I think one of the things that can help us to understand this the best is a that Turkish television shows can react extremely quickly to ongoing developments. So they are in the production of what can end up being like a two hour soap opera. They're doing that at such a rapid pace that they can react to these kinds of events. You see that much more at the domestic level. Um, there was, for example, I'll just give a quick domestic example. Um, there was a reference to the death of a young boy who had been shot in the head with a tear gas canister by police during the Gezi protests in 2013. Within almost a week of his death, there was an episode that had a small boy resembling that particular individual, you know, portrayed as a sympathetic character on a television show. So showing solidarity with this mm -hmm. Alevi, non-Sunni child who had been killed by tear gas canisters and who was called a terrorist by the government because he was Alevi. In foreign policy, there are still these very prominent Ottoman themes in the television shows that are produced by state media and that are also being shown on private television stations owned by holding companies that have these banking interests and construction interests and all these different you know, financial and political reasons to want to show content the AKP is, uh, is approving of. But other than sort of these Ottoman themes, anti-Semitic anti conspiracy theories, anti-US uh, conspiracy theories, there's not a lot of foreign policy discussion reflected in the entertainment sector. Mm -hmm. There is quite a bit in the news media sector, um, but there's much less in the entertainment media sector. And one of the reasons for that is that they don't really have to address that they can use that as a way to promote their domestic agenda, create suspicion of, of outside forces, reinforce conspiracy theories. Um, uh, there's one particular show that's about Abdul Hamid II um, that's very much uh, heavy in uh, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. Um, often uh, there's like a, a kind of nefarious character who is uh, supported by the West, by the U.S. Um, they'll be uh, involved in some kind of, you know, lobbying global capitalist imperialist efforts to undermine the regime. So that's where the foreign policy stuff comes in. The entertainment sector doesn't really have to explain to the audience why Turkey is pivoting as quickly as it is to try to, you know, fill its coffers, you as it were. You don't, you don't uh, see a bunch of Saudi villains suddenly turning into heroes. On, uh, on not not yet. No, no. Um, it would be fascinating to see how how that is reflected. But for the most part, so just one quick example. Um, there is a, a show that again, uh, it's so interesting. The Gezi Park protests were such a fundamental inflection point in Turkish mm -hmm. politics, but also in the government's targeting of the media, of pop culture specifically, because what they saw was all of these actors and musicians showing up at Gezi, garnering a ton of domestic and international support, and then really undermining the legitimacy of the regime. So since then, a lot of actors have been blacklisted. Um, you know, they're not getting television shows, they're not able to show up in ads and so forth. Um, but so now there's, and there's these ongoing or recent cases against individuals uh, convicted of basically overthrowing the government because they may have had, may or may not have something to do with Gezi. So there's a new show um, that's streaming on a state uh, streaming platform, state owned streaming platform. That's basically about Osman Kavala, um, who was a civil society activist, philanthropist. Um, and he, it's, it's his absolute likeness, this character. Um, and he is, again, this like evil conspiring global capitalist who works with the West to undermine the, the regime and so forth. So those are the kinds of foreign policy themes that are, are coming into the entertainment sector. But what's really, really interesting, I think worth noting, is that they're not necessarily new. 
anti-Western sentiment, particularly anti-U.S. sentiment and conspiracy theories go to the founding of the Republic. They go to Sev syndrome. They go to this idea that Istanbul was occupied and these Western forces are going to dismember Turkey and tear it limb from limb and support the Kurds and you know, do anything they can to kind of tear up Turkey. Those are still resonant. And the AKP has found that because of these similar forms of resonance across different nationalist constituencies, they can find these kind of wedge issues or points of common interest that can bring individuals on board and then maybe make them amenable to some of their kind of uh, organic narratives as well. So kind of to bring this conversation full circle, um, you spend a lot of time in social media and um and so I'm curious what you see in terms of counter narratives or commentary on these pop culture productions that circulate among kind of the, you know, the the chatter within uh, kind of Turkish social media. And I'm also curious whether Elon Musk has managed to destroy that and make and kind of take it away as a source of uh, research. <laughs> Elon Musk has destroyed everything. I was just going to interject when you said you're on social media a lot these days. I wanted to say not so much anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's and I mean, lamenting all kinds of things. But one is, I think, a source of information, a source of information sharing for a lot of people who work on these issues. You know, social media is it's an uh, it's a communication platform. It's a way of kind of reading what the people are talking about today when you can't be in country. Obviously, it's not as good, but mm -hmm. it's the proxy, depending on who you're following. Um, the interesting thing about the pop culture being produced by the AKP is that when it comes to television, a lot of people just checked out. They're like, I'm going to Netflix. I'm, I'm going to other streaming platforms. But then they started regulating Netflix as well, not to the extent that they do the uh, the television shows that are being shown on the state and private or AKP adjacent television stations. But there is one show in particular that kind of was able to walk a fine line and ended up being uh, sanctioned by the Supreme Board of Radio and Television. But it was called Kuzuljik Shagavitsi or Cranberry Sorbet, actually cranberry sweetened fruit drink, but that doesn't roll off the tongue quite as trippingly. But that particular show was showing the challenges within both secular and pious Sunni families. And so this was something that the government wasn't very happy with because they were showing uh, this ideal, typical, you know, pious Sunni family uh, engaging in really uh, repressive forms of behavior against family members. And so that ended up being sanctioned by um, by the government, but it became a topic of political discussion in the run of the Turkish elections. And so people were sort of focusing on this and like, oh, this, this show, which is actually uh, bringing together multiple audiences, finally there's something on Turkish television, you know, non-AKP people want to, to watch, uh, but then it ends up being censored. And what's really interesting is that another show on the same network a week after, or a little bit after they receive this, this five-week ban, they actually do like a little shout out to that show. And they're like, oh, we've got to get, you know, we got to get home. We got to watch Cranberry Sorbet, right? So there's ways in which, because these shows are produced as quickly as they can, they can respond to these political debates. But in terms of the social media debate uh, sort of question that you're, you were asking, I think it's the case that when you have these sort of gems or these, these common points where people in the opposition can find something where they can focus around, it does become this center of political conversation. And it was particularly because this was in the run up to the elections. One thing that I will say that I think is most worrisome um, when we're talking about kind of the pushback against AKP content um, is, or I should say, the there is a lot of pushback against something that has become incredibly worrisome, and that is the anti-LGBTQ rhetoric that mm -hmm. the government has been engaging in since the elections. What they have done is said that LGBTQ representative popular culture content equates to social cultural terrorism. And they're saying that the West is trying to spread its, you know, imperialist, uh, non-authentic, very populist, right? Uh, non-authentic, corrupt, uh, perverse, like uh, 
epithets, anti-LGBTQ epithets being used and saying that their representation in popular culture content equates to a form of terrorism. And that of course is the step towards criminalizing it. So there are these moves towards uh, removing, blocking, censoring, and, and potentially criminalizing um, that kind of content. So you do see, I think a lot of social media pushback against that. Um, but in terms of other forms of uh, critiques of shows, there's there's really nothing that that matches the fascination that was centered around Kuzulzuk Sharbeti in the run up to the election and the hopes that, you know, maybe we can start to see this kind of media that shows a more balanced version, a less curated AKP adjacent version of television in the future. And then, of course, with the elections, we see that we didn't see that political change that I think a lot of people were hoping for. Well, that's really, really interesting. Uh, we've been we've been speaking with uh, Liesl Hintz of uh, Johns Hopkins Sice. Uh, thanks for taking the time to talk to us about your research and about this uh, really interesting Zoom workshop. Thank you so much for having me. This has been the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'd like to thank Thomas Seras and Liesl Hintz for joining us this week, and we look forward to having you here with us again next week. Da, da, da.